Good morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your children, give you humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all mankind. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. We ask you this morning to fill us with gratitude and give us a strong awareness of all your mercies so that our hearts may be sincerely thankful and that we show forth your praise not only with our lips, but with our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. We come to you, O God, the source of all power, wisdom, and love, acknowledging that we are utterly dependent upon you, and as you have invited us to come and make our requests known to you, we do so with gratitude and expectation. We make intercession today on behalf of those who you have brought into our lives by way of family, friendship, and acquaintance, and who have need of your mercy, grace, comfort, and hope, who are sick, suffering, and recovering, for those who are sad, afraid, and grieving. We ask for your mercies, your strength, your comfort, and your healing. And we pray for our local community, our state, our nation, and even the whole world, and for the civil leaders that you have appointed to be our ministers in this time of upheaval, sickness, financial turmoil, and fear. May we, your people, submit to them and pray for them and even give thanks for them as we look to you. For you have said that you would keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, for he trusts in you. May we find our peace in your power, wisdom, and love for your people. Teach us in this time of testing and grant true repentance from our sins. Father, we pray this morning that you will be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to assist us in receiving and understanding your holy word. We live in times where people ignore and trample your word, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We know that your judgment on these sins is also present. Misery and death are all around us, for you will not be mocked. What men sow, they shall also reap. Surely a harvest of of despair surrounds us. Yet in your mercy, you have provided a remedy for our sins. There is hope for the hopeless, since Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you for the gospel of Christ. Help us to live in a manner worthy of its calling. Help us to adorn the gospel of our Lord. We pray your blessings now on the word preached and on the worship offered to your name. May the sweet aroma of Christ and his sacrifice ascend, and may you be satisfied that we might enter into your communion of peace. May the words we hear with our ears this day through your grace be grafted to our hearts, that they might bring forth life in us to the honor and praise of your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. This morning I normally would start with a scripture reading, but we're going to have four scripture readings throughout the sermon today, and so I just want to set the table and begin and lead up to that. And so in just a few moments, we will read these passages. We have been talking about how the Bible is a book of stories, of many stories, but all of those stories point to the one grand master story 
the story of Jesus Christ. Dr. Peter Lightheart gives a great summary statement regarding the importance of stories. He says this, The stories that we tell as groups provide a fund of common memory memories which shape uh, who we are through uh, who we are together by reminding us who we have been together cultures are identified by their stories and the church is a culture it follows that the church too is defined by her story but what is that story and we this series is is titled what's wrong with the world that's the question we are seeking to answer And there's really not much debate that there is something terribly wrong, terribly wrong with the world, and indeed terribly wrong with us. On that, most of us are agreed. But there is much debate over exactly what it is that is wrong, and even more debate regarding what to do about it. Can this be fixed, and how? Of course, before we can have any hope of a remedy, we must first have an accurate diagnosis of the problem. So again, we've already seen that the Bible is a big book and that it's a long story, that it is both simple and complex, yet in its simple simple unity, it is there that we find the ability to make sense of all the complex details. The Bible is one big story about God, about man, about sin, and about redemption. Christ came into the world to save sinners, to save broken people. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to redeem the world that has gone wrong. But this is also the offense of the gospel. It's the universal kingship of Jesus that is so threatening to the leaders of this world and really to each of us and since we all desire to be our own, our own God, his kingship is a threat to our kingship. Now, we began looking last time and the last couple of times in these sermons, uh, and we understood that when God created man in righteousness and holiness in paradise, that the world was in order. God and man in paradise. There was, everything was beautiful. And we pointed out that if this were the end of our story, we could simply say, and they lived happily ever after. But the blissful covenant relationship between God and man and between men and other men and the whole creation was conditioned upon two things, on faith and love. All Adam had to do as an expression of his love for God was to believe what God said. Loving and believing him would inevitably lead to obedience or faithfulness, not the other way around. It wasn't his obedience and faithfulness that made him right with God. It was his right relationship with God that led to faithfulness and obedience. This, in turn, would maintain the world as a paradise. Our relationship with God, our fellowship or our separation from him, is always the fruit of either belief or unbelief. God's word was the law that, or the rules that gave order and life to the world. To abandon God's word is to break covenant with God. It's to be separated from God, who is the source of life. It's to die. And Adam and Eve were created after God's image, 
And this means that they were to reflect the loving communion that preexisted in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal communion of love. Image-bearing demands that man, like God, live in community. Our identity is essentially tied up in our relationships to God and to others. And so he must have communion with other people in the family, in society, and ultimately in the church if he is to glorify the triune God who is himself a holy communion or community of love and fellowship. When man fell, it was not just the individual souls of Adam and Eve that were affected, uh, but rather their entire existence, their relationship with God, their relationship to one another, and with the whole creation was completely corrupted by sin. Sin is the failure to maintain the relationship. Faithful, it's a failure to maintain a communion with God and communion with others. That is what's wrong with the world. Thus, when Adam sinned, he died. And death, remember, is just separation from God and from the covenant. And that ensued upon Adam immediately. As, uh, with, uh, immediately upon his act of unbelief. And so Adam and his wife were now cut off from the source of life. Sin wrecked this beautiful house. Paradise was lost. Adam forfeited everything. And that's what death does. Cut off from the covenant, the relationship, man loses himself in a universe that now is incomprehensible. He's alienated from God, alienated from the creation, and alienated from other people. And so this new relationship ensues. We had a relationship of a a communion of love, but now this love and communion becomes a relationship of enmity and hostility. Man becomes enemies toward God, and even enemies among themselves. You know that when someone sins against you, that that relationship is changed. If someone lies about you or steals from you or does something to harm you in any way, and until that sin is removed, that relationship cannot be restored. Remember, God's law is an expression of his love. It is his standard of love. And when the law of God is used properly or lawfully, it sets before us the terms of the proper conditions for love or for the proper relationships. Love for God. How does God tell us we should love him? Love for our neighbors. How does God tell us we should love our neighbors? In fact, upon these two laws, the Bible tells us, hang all the law and the prophets. The entire Bible is summed up in love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Unbelief and disobedience produce the opposite. It often tries to disguise itself, but sin is actually an expression of hatred. It's always a violation of the law of love. And God's law was given to instruct us, again, on how we're to live at peace with him and with man. We thought we knew better, and that's what's wrong with the world. We still think we know better. So I want us to look quickly this morning at four stories from the book of Genesis that illustrate the effects of sin on man's relationships. 
First, we're going to look at Adam and Eve, who were cast out of the Garden of Eden or out of paradise. Then the slaying of Abel by his brother Cain. And then the destruction of the world when God brought judgment by way of a universal flood. And finally, the Tower of Babel and the division of nations. So let's, let's back up and let's look at this relationship between God and man. How did sin affect that? How did the breaking of the law of love affect that? So from Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read verses 9 through 24, a bit longer passage here. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and uh, and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and, I, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return." And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put his hand and take take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man... And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we had order and beauty and now it has been turned into disorder and ugliness. The curse, the punishment, the penalty for breaking this covenant with God, this relationship with God. And it's seen, again, primarily when we sin, we see a breaking of those relationships. So God gives his law to to order these relationships. We violate that law. We say we want to do it on our terms, not your terms. And now we no longer walk with God. Adam had walked with God in the cool of the day, we're told in Genesis. But now when God comes, he hides himself. God cast him ultimately out of the garden, out of paradise. He could no longer commune with God or worship God. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So sin is now standing between man and God. And then in Romans 8, 7-8, Because the carnal mind 
is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, for indeed, uh, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So once unbelief enters in, that's the foundation of a relationship with God. And now, through that unbelief, the communion is broken. There's no communication between us and God. He could no longer do his work as intended, Adam and Eve, I should say. Then Adam, to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, and then God goes on to curse the ground so that even, even the creation, even the earth, uh, because of thorns and thistles and all that, he says, you're going to, by the sweat of your brow, now have to work to bring forth the food that you need. And ultimately, you're going to return to the ground. You're going to physically die as well. Romans 8, 19 through 22 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation uh, was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberation of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. So the whole creation is now impacted by this corruption, this sin that has ruptured paradise. The marital relationship was also radically changed. Eve has assumed authority over her husband. Adam had abdicated his responsibility to lead. Blame was being shifted and innocence was lost. So that's our first story, how sin impacted our relationship to God. Second, our second story is from Genesis 4, 1 through 16, is about Cain and Abel and how sin affects the relationship between man and man. Here's our text, beginning in verse 1, chapter 4 of Genesis. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which is which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the, from the face of the ground. I shall be... Hit hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So Cain and Abel, who are the children, the sons of Adam and Eve, are proof of how this covenant relationship affects others, how, how when we break that covenant relationship, it impacts others. Clearly, these men inherited the guilt of Adam's first sin as well as his sin nature, and they lacked a, a personal righteousness of their own before God, no standing before God because of sin, and so they stood in need of a sacrifice in order to be restored in their relationship and communion with God. It's evident from this story that God had given these two men particular instructions as to how they were to go about that, which meant they needed to believe what God said and then act on that because they loved God. They wanted to do what he said to do, so it required faith and then obedience. Abel believed and obeyed God in these instructions. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, an inspired commentary on this very incident, and it says this, by faith... Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he, being dead, still speaks. Cain, however, thought that he would do it his way. We read in Genesis 4-5, but he did not respect Cain, that is, God did not respect Cain and his offering. He didn't receive it. There was something wrong with it. It wasn't being done the way God said. Again, Cain is wanting to dictate the rules of the relationship. This was an example of enmity and a lack of love. Unbelief and disobedience are always violations of love. 1 John 3, 10-12, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor does he who does not love his brother for This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So we have brother against brother. Throughout redemptive history, we will see this antithesis between unrighteousness and righteousness, between love and enmity. Between faith and obedience and unbelief and disobedience, between the seed of the woman who is Christ and the seed of the serpent who is the devil, this conflict will rage. And that's what's wrong with the world. Our third story is the destruction of the world and the judgment of the great flood. From Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So from one act of unbelief, within a few generations, the entire earth is now filled with billions of people, and it was filled also with evil. Indeed, paradise had been lost, 
and we get the big picture then of what's wrong with the world. God, who once looked at his creation and pronounced it good, now only saw evil continually. The Bible says that God felt grief. Nevertheless, from the beginning, even in the midst of all this brokenness and all this turmoil, all this upheaval, from the beginning, we've seen hope. Go back to Genesis 3.15. God had promised a redeemer, even as he was pronouncing the curse upon Adam and Eve for their sin. He said, I'll put enmity between the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, the first prophecy about Christ, a promised Savior and Redeemer. He had also given, given them a covering, a sign of atonement. God had clearly prescribed a way of reconciliation by way of sacrifice and worship as demonstrated in Abel's acceptable sacrifice. And now, even in the midst of a massive judgment against evil men, we read, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Unmerited, and in fact, ill-deserved favor from the Lord, God intended to rescue broken men. We read in Hebrews 11.7, again, inspired commentary on this very story, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear or respect, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and made and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah just believed God. Noah loved God. And so Noah got busy building his ark that God told him to build. In the face of incredible opposition, no doubt, over a long period of time, Noah believed God. And so here is our theme again, the two-sided coin of redemption. Noah believed God, then he moved. In other words, faith, love, obedience. And God counted it as righteousness. That brings us to our fourth story. The Tower of Babel and the Division of Nations, found in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they, they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build a city for ourselves and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is why this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the, all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad all over the face of the earth. And so God first begins to divide the earth geographically after the flood, the Continents began to drift and as the waters recede due to the upheaval. And now they're being physically separated from each other. That's starting to happen. But that process was not quite complete. 
But it did, so it didn't take long after the flood for men to return to their old ways of attempting to be their own God. Rather than seeking the Lord by way of faith, love, and obedience uh, to his word, they sought to do it their own way. It's an old story. We want to be our own God. And so they said, let us make a name for ourselves. We want to be somebody. We want to be in charge. Unbelief and disobedience invited more judgment from God and resulted in even greater enmity between God and man and man and man. So communication, a form of communion, was lost through the confusion of languages. And by the way, just a note, this will be reversed at Pentecost when all the different languages had gathered in Jerusalem different from different countries, different foreign languages, and they heard the gospel and they all understood it as the church, as the early disciples spoke in other languages. But that's a, another story. But this... So these are all tied together to the great master story, remember. But at this point, God is confusing the languages. The communion, the communication is breaking down because of sin. And so the word or speech is central to life. Men are now scattered on a geographically divided earth and their ability to join forces in their rebellion against God is now frustrated. They will now turn on each other. The effects of sin are described in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 19. Here's, here's uh, what we, uh, the answer that we read. What are, in the question, or what are the effects of sin? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And that's what's wrong with the world. Sin, unbelief, brokenness. Now we're going to stop here this morning. This is a series. But I never want to just close a sermon with a description of the problem, a description of the sin and the brokenness without also pointing to the remedy. And so we'll be taking a much deeper look at that remedy in the weeks to come. But I want to read... 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, as we close. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, reestablishing that relationship that had been broken, not imputing their trespasses to them, remember sin is the problem, and has committed us to us, that is the apostles, the word of reconciliation. Here we are back to God's word again is the base. I got to believe what God says. I got to believe the gospel. I got to believe what God says about Christ and about the work that he did. And I've got to bow before that and embrace that because that's the way of reconciliation and a restoration of my relationship with him, my relationship with others. Behold, he says, I become a new creation. All things become new. Verse 20, now then we are, the apostles again speaking, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. You think of that as 
the apostles are who give us the New Testament, who give us the Bible, and so they're still pleading with us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God is going to provide the remedy through Jesus Christ, the remedy to sin, to remove the obstacle, the enmity, so that we're no longer enemies, but friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that your laws are holy and are given to us because you love, love us and desire for us to commune with you and with one another. We also acknowledge that our breaking of your law, our sins, have caused that communion of love to be broken. We are separated. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We know that sin is the problem, and it's the problem with us, and it's the problem with the world. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to take away our sins and to make us new creations, a new humanity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.